It's been a long day, hasn't it? First day of retreat. It's usually challenging, some way or another. And being such a hot day, coming from our busy lives, trying to settle in. It's a lot that's difficult about the first day or so of a retreat. My good friend Sylvia Borstein told me about a a letter she got from an elderly friend of hers who had just moved into a new nursing home and was asking Sylvia to come visit because she said, I'm having trouble adjusting to my new situation. And I think that's what happens to us all the time in our lives. We're always adjusting to new situations. And it's difficult. Come on retreat and we have to figure out, you know, where do I sit in the dining hall and what, how can I, what's the right cushion to have in the meditation hall and what time of day should I shower and where's a good walking path at this time of day. And we're just trying to figure all that out. So it can feel like uh, that there's a lot to, to contend with on the first day and our energy isn't so strong yet. So it can be challenging. I was saying in one of my groups, I'm always amazed that people continue to come on retreats because they're really difficult. It's hard on the body, the mind, the heart. We're really doing challenging work here. But I actually, I often like to say this just to acknowledge how challenging retreats can be. I said it on another retreat and the next day I got a note saying, I'm having a great time. Am I doing something wrong? <laughs> of course, if you're having a great time, no, you're not doing anything wrong but just really wanting to acknowledge that it can be difficult to sit and walk. It's such a different way of being than our normal lifestyle. We don't normally get up at 5.30 and sit and walk all day long and sit for 45 minutes at a time over and over again, repeat these phrases over and over again. So just to recognize that we've taken on a a challenging task and beginning the metta practice there's a a certain amount of effort that we need to put in. And before the practice starts to really take hold, to take root, it can feel dry and frustrating and boring and repetitive and and that we're not getting anywhere. uh, The analogy that always comes to me is Sisyphus, you know, rolling his boulder uphill and we get a little way up and then we let it go and feel like we've fallen back down and we pick ourselves up and we start again. It can really feel like that just to know that this is very typical, very common. And there can be a lot of doubts about this practice, especially if you haven't done it before. But even if you've done it before, it can feel like that this time it's really not working. You know, or everyone else has figured it out and I'm the one that doesn't know what to do here. Everyone else is cruising and, and I'm just in this morass of confusion and, and frustration. So you have to rely a little bit on faith, on trust, on, in, in the practice, in the teachers, to recognize that it is a practice that people have done for thousands of years. There must be something that works for it to have continued, for it to, to be still valued in this day and age. But that's challenging sometimes when it's so frustrating. Yesterday I was driving into uh, Larkspur to pick Kamala up from the airport as she'd just arrived from Hawaii and I was listening to the radio KQED, it was Science Friday and uh, they were having a show on the 40th anniversary of the walking on the moon. 
So it was a, a bunch of the astronauts who were there for that momentous occasion. And they were all talking about what a spiritual experience it was to be up there in space and be the first people to turn around and see the Earth hanging there like a gem, like a jewel, isolated in space. I mean, I can't really even imagine what that must have been like. We've seen these beautiful photos of it, but to be out there in the isolation of space, turning back and seeing this beautiful planet in the midst of infinite space, and know that everything that you valued, appreciated, was difficult or loved in your life, was there in that what felt like could be held in the palm of your hand. It changed all of them to see that. Because from that perspective, it's so hard to relate to the pettiness that goes on in so much of our lives. When you see the planet like that, there aren't lines marking countries from one another. It's hard to comprehend the amount of bloodshed and war that's, that's happened over square miles of land, looking at it from that perspective. And just to see the beauty of it, the beauty of nature, the, this miracle of life in the midst of so much blackness, so much space. I think that's a little bit what we're doing here in this practice. We're taking ourselves out of the usual um, busyness of our lives, the, the, the way that we can be so involved in the minutiae of, of worries and agendas and emails and, and uh, obligations. As we step out of that, we get a new perspective. The heart is really able to open to the beauty that's here all the time, but sometimes it's so close in front of our face we can't take the time to notice it. And so it can feel a little disorienting as we step out in this way, into retreat, into the spaciousness of this place where we don't have obligations, apart from showing up in the meditation hall or doing our yogi job. It really is this time to develop a different perspective on our lives. And from that perspective, we actually appreciate much more what we do have, really feel a lot of gratitude and appreciation. But if you're used to doing vipassana practice, you can perhaps feel a little bit at sea with these new set of instructions. There's that openness and spaciousness of mindfulness practice, where we're just noticing what is. And here we're saying, no, no, think these particular thoughts. Cultivate this sense of friendliness. Direct the mind towards these images. It's very different. And I can remember feeling that sense of confusion. It was like someone changed all the rules. And I, I was very used to doing mindfulness practice and felt really out of my depth and disoriented when I first started doing metta practice. But as I got into it, I really saw that I was learning so much about the art of meditation from doing this practice. Because any time we set up any kind of intention in practice, we have to balance that with acceptance, with compassion, with gratitude. And so I would see that dynamic at play all the time. I learned a huge amount about right effort 
how to actually give myself to this practice without getting into striving, without judging, without having expectation of how it should be. And of course, that's a constant learning. I'm, I'm still learning how to do that. But doing metta ta- taught me things uh, in a way that I, was, I hadn't learnt from just doing vipassana practice. So it's a very powerful practice in that way. But I remember when I first heard of the idea of doing an intensive metta retreat, I was like a 10-foot pole. There was nothing I could think of that I would not rather do. That was a terrible sentence, wasn't it? (laughs) I couldn't think of anything I would like to do less. I still can't get it. Anyway, I didn't like the idea of doing a metta retreat. It just sounded so hokey. You know, like living in a Hallmark card. May every day be better and better and your life be full of joy. And, and it's like, what's the point of that? Uh, you know, I had a very cynical attitude. And, you know, I just thought, that's not for me. You know, and really told myself that story. Not, you don't need to do that. Of course, after a, a while, I realized that what was going on was a lot of fear. That I really didn't think I could do metta practice. That I could feel the kind of feeling I was projecting was appropriate or cultivated out of metta practice. And once I started to see that, I knew I needed to do a metta retreat. So I dove in. I did a six-week retreat at IMS. It was really tough. There were many, many times when I felt like fleeing anything than being in that retreat. It really challenged me on so many levels. But I had a huge breakthrough in that retreat just in accepting my practice for what it was. It wasn't full of light and love and bliss. But through that acceptance and sticking with it, it was amazingly transformative in ways I could never have imagined. So I've really come to appreciate this practice and all of the different levels on which it works on us. It's quite amazing and powerful. But many of us have begun our practice with vipassana, with mindfulness practice, and love that simplicity. Just sit down and notice what's happening. Tune into the direct reality. Notice the the qualities of each moment, their evanescent nature, their changing nature, the selfless nature. It's, It's just a beautiful, simple, powerful practice. But I found, as I've been teaching longer, many people coming to metta and finding that that's the practice that really speaks to them. Even beginning their practice, I know there are many people here that this is their first residential meditation retreat, and they're choosing to do it using metta. And it's an amazing tool. And even though it's not designed in the same way, or the the intention isn't the same to see these deep truths about the nature of reality, I find that insights still come in this practice. That as we turn our attention again and again to to what we're feeling on this deep and true level, we really start to see the patternings of the mind, the delusions that take hold, the, the confusion that's apparent there, and start to see through that, start to cut through that. So even though metta practice isn't traditionally considered a wisdom practice, that it's not ultimately 
a liberation practice like Vipassana is, there's ways in which it's enormously insightful and healing. And through that letting go, we're able to actually penetrate more deeply into the truth of things. Because there's a trust, a confidence, a steadiness that comes out of the practice. So really to be open to this practice, working on all these different levels, very personal levels, a lot of healing can happen, a lot of uh, forgiveness, a letting go. There can be huge openings of appreciation and joy and love, but that can also point to much deeper truths because what happens as the metta really deepens is it can, it has the potential to become really transcendent where we let go of a sense of self, especially a narrow sense of self, and there's just metta. There's just a sense of being in this field of love, and there's no one sending metta to someone else, but just metta arising in this moment. And in that space, a lot of letting go happens, a lot of opening happens we start to tune into these universal truths that everyone wants to be happy. And it's amazing how powerful that is if we can start to see each other with that, that truth in mind, especially when we get to working with a difficult person, that all beings want to be happy. It, it just shifts how we relate to ourselves and how we relate to others. So it's such a great package. It's one of the reasons why I love practicing and teaching this retreat, because of all of the different ways in which this practice works on us. The other great benefit it has is that it's a concentration practice. It's one of the ways that we traditionally teach people to do, um, to, to, to access and develop deeper states of concentration, jhanas, absorptions, we won't talk a lot about this on this retreat because in a week it's a fairly short amount of time, but hopefully it's enough for you to get a taste of that. And the concentration develops through steadiness, through continuity. And it doesn't matter what that object is. It, it, the, the phrases are, are really a great support in that. It could be images, it could be the feeling. All of these can come together one at a time to develop this continuity and help the mind come together and collect and become more concentrated. And so there's a whole range of benefits that can come out of the concentration, a sense of contentment and peace and calm. So again, uh, it, 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 it's just interesting how this practice will go through cycles because often in the metta there's purification where we really open to difficult experiences, both in the moment and from memories of the past, and then have times of settledness where the concentration deepens and there's really a sense of settling in the practice. And they both can go in cycles, in waves, and we can feel the benefit of both of them. One of the beautiful benefits of concentration is that in and of itself, it tends to reduce our susceptibility to the hindrances that we'll talk about tomorrow, these challenges to our practice of greed and aversion and sleepiness and restlessness and doubt. As the mind collects and gets steady, there's not so much room for these forces 
to come in. So we can discover a sense of ease in the practice. It's quite beautiful. So again, different ways in which the practice can evolve. And as I said, a week is a short time to really develop or deepen in concentration. But I'm hoping you'll all get a little taste of that. And what I often talk about in uh, metta practices, there are uh, different facets of the practice that we can emphasize. And in emphasizing the metta feeling and changing images or using different phrases, bringing up different people, it can evoke a lot of metta feeling, but doesn't necessarily deepen the concentration. What we might do to deepen the concentration, which is to be really steady and continuous and simple in the practice, mightn't so much give juice to the metta feeling. So we're always balancing those and kind of keeping an eye on, do we need to bring more feeling in or perhaps more steadiness in? And all of you will be exploring that balance through this week and helpful to talk to your teacher about how those two are working for you. And for me, deepening in the concentration actually had also a huge effect on my practice. It's one of the things that really opened some doors for me that I hadn't discovered in just doing mindfulness practice. So again, you might all be in different places with this, but use this week to explore, to really see where, does, where is the juice of the practice? What's working for you? It's really important, again, we'll emphasize, there's no right way to do this. It's, it's kind of magical how this practice works so differently on each of us, and really to trust your own unfolding. But we'll just be always pointing to, to possibilities, the bigger picture of where this practice might lead. So you really, it's, it's, it's so important to trust the practice, to trust your practice, to trust the practice in its simplicity of just repeating the phrases, to really create a foundation of that repetition of the phrases in whatever way works for you, different speeds, coming up with your own phrases. But even if there's not a lot of metta feeling, that's the foundation of the practice. It deepens both the concentration and it's the purification of the mind. So don't worry if you're not always feeling a lot of metta feeling. If that was my criteria for practice, I'd be out of here a long time ago. Because a lot of my practice was just very ordinary, neutral, just saying the phrases. But I really saw through my willingness to do that, that the deepening was happening and huge openings could, could develop out of that. Someone in a group today said something so wise. She said, I just realized, even if I was doing something I really liked from 5.30 in the morning to 9.30 at night, I'd get sick of it. I couldn't keep doing it. It's, there's not anything that I want to do and be really engaged in and on top of and, and, and at the top of my game all that length of time. And it was such a, a great insight. I really appreciated her sharing that with us because it's true. It's a long time that we ask you to be present for, from 5.30 in the morning till 9.30 or 10 at night. There's nothing, the best thing in the world you could imagine, you probably would get sick of doing it that much. So doing this practice that has its challenges, of course we're going to have times of resistance or when it's just neutral or there's some grumpiness or irritation. That's really normal. Give yourself 
a break. Don't judge yourself because of that. It really is about this planting of seeds and just creating the intention, even if there's not a lot of meta feeling. As my wise friend Carol Wilson says, fake meta is better than real aversion any day. <laughs> so. And we just, it, it really is like that. We just kind of pretend sometimes and it comes, the feeling comes. So really to trust that, to not judge your practice, that it's not full of light and love and bliss. It won't be. Certainly mine wasn't a lot of the time. But metta is powerful because of the way it counters, is so appropriate for the challenges that we face. Metta in its essence of acceptance, of kindness, of friendliness, of goodwill. If we can actually bring that attitude to these difficulties, to the judging mind, to the frustration, to the tiredness, to the boredom, then the practice is working. Metta is actually considered the direct antidote to aversion, that metta and aversion can't coexist. They might move in and out very quickly, I'm sure you've experienced that, but there can't be a moment where both are right there at the same time. So it's a direct antidote to this tendency to push away, to say, no, I don't want, I don't like. But I actually think that it really balances the other two of what we call the kalesas, or torments of mind, of greed, aversion, and delusion. Because it's a, a direct antidote to greed in the sense that we spend so much time wishing well for others, really opening our hearts, being very inclusive. It's not just about what can I get, what's good for me, but we start to have this sense of interconnectedness, this sense of uh, equality amongst all beings, this sense of caring that's very open-handed. And so it's a real shift of focus from our traditional self-centeredness. And it also leads us into reflecting on what do we really need to be happy? Often what we're grasping and holding on to is a superficial kind of wanting that we think we need. And in metta practice, I really think it's helpful for us all to reflect on the true meaning of each of the phrases, but particularly, what does it mean to be happy? What truly makes me happy? What is happiness? And as we do this, it tends, lessens the tendency towards grasping because we ha deepen in what's really useful for us, what's, what's really a source of contentment and ease. And then delusion, the third of the kalesas, is basically a disconnection. It's not seeing the truth of things. And metta leads us into connection. Many of us feel disconnected from our bodies, from our emotions, from other people. It's an ultimate form of delusion, and metta brings us closer. So this is also part of what I was referring to earlier about it being a wisdom practice in reducing the effect of these torments of mind, of the kalesas. The wisdom can really begin to flourish. We see more clearly the way to happiness and to freedom. You've probably heard many times uh, people say that Buddhist practice is about developing or cultivating these two wings of 
wisdom and compassion and how they, they're both needed to have this practice really flourish. Well, it's interesting that the Buddha talked more about metta than compassion, and it's why we make metta the foundation practice, because metta, this heart of openness, is very fluid. When it opens or sees suffering, it, it just effortlessly becomes compassion. When the heart of openness is, uh, sees joy in ourselves or in others, it naturally is joyful. Mudita is present. And equanimity has to be there to give that sense of balance, to keep us, keep us steady in the practice, to keep the heart open even when there are difficulties. So I think metta is the great foundation practice. And we'll do the other Brahma-viharas um, as, the, as the week goes on. But you'll see this way that metta just really opens very easily to the other three of the Brahma-viharas. And so we could say that metta and wisdom really are the qualities, the, the, the states of mind and heart we need to practice, to let our uh, truest wisdom come forward, to let the, the deepest understandings really radiate from us. And so for many people, they choose to practice, to focus on metta practice exclusively for extended periods of time. I know I did when I first did that metta retreat. Now it's, gosh, more than 10 years ago. I did a number of years of just doing Brahma-vihara practice, and my daily practice was just doing metta practice. And it was a really significant practice time for me. I really appreciated it. So you may find that that's true for you too, and I think it's a wonderful thing to do. Some people also find that they spend a lot of time doing metta just for themselves. That even though we talk about in the instructions moving on to different categories, I think it's helpful to spend some time with the other categories. There's such a powerful healing that happens with again and again affirming that wish, that deep and true wish for ourselves to be happy and to really look at all the ways we don't believe that that's possible or we deserve it or that we could ever experience it. So again, to really trust your own intuition with this, to spend a, your practice outside of the retreat just doing metta, but here on the retreat, if you want to stay mainly with doing metta for yourself, it's not selfish to do that. I actually think it's really wise because until we can come from that place of really deep self-acceptance and love, we can't fully give that to others. So a wonderful thing to do to make the most of your time here is to spend a lot of time sending metta to yourself because it really strengthens the heart, opens the heart, and then it's available for the difficulties that we experience, both personally, but of course, all of the tragedies that are going on in the planet at the moment. I mean, it, it just, it's staggering, really, the amount of suffering there is on all different levels in, in this country, through poverty, through racism, the economic uh, difficulties that people are going through, through injustice, environmental challenges. 
but in the rest of the world, all of these, all of this and much more, wars and aggression and bombings and all kinds of things. Metta is the tool that we have to, to let ourselves stay present for all of that, to really continue to stay open and able to tune into that, not have to push it away because it's too much. Sharon Salzberg, who is, of course, our guru of loving-kindness. She, she wrote that beautiful book um, on, on the art of loving-kindness. The other day wrote um, a short article, a blog for Huffington Post. She's one of their contributors. And this is what she said. After the metro bombing in London in July 2005, my initial response echoed most of those around me. Sorrow for lives lost, some anxiety about, about getting on a subway in New York City, distress at the state of degenerate, the degenerating world. This was all natural, but remained strictly within us versus them thinking. Willa, my then seven-year-old godchild, had another perspective. On being told what had happened, her eyes filled with tears and she said, Mom, we should say a prayer. As she and her mother held hands, Willa asked to go first. Her mother was stunned to hear Willa begin with, may the, ma- the bad people remember the love in their hearts. This is from a seven-year-old. She's got it down. But the reason that Sharon wrote this article is because uh, her Willa, her godchild, is adopted, adopted from China, And there's a movie out at the moment called Orphan, and the tagline is, it must be hard to love an adopted child like your own. And Sharon was just staggered, as I was when I heard that, that that someone thought this was a good advertising line for a movie, and just perpetuating the sense that there are certain people who are lovable and others that are less so. Of course, the movie is this whole thing about the child is something terrible and does terrible things. But just to even think that that was a good advertising line for a movie. And of course, now Warner Brothers has apologized and they've taken it away. But it's amazing how people can just immediately go into that. There are others and they're not lovable. They're not okay. And we have to see how we do that all the time. Metta is the antidote for that way of thinking. And as we go through the days here, I'm hoping that you'll see a little for yourself the power of just continuing to wish well, even when things are difficult, even when there is a sense of other, whether the other is the part of you that you don't like, someone here on the retreat who's challenging, people in your life that are difficult. Metta is the great antidote for this sense of separation and judging. I have a Tibetan teacher who calls self-judging the disease of the West because he said, we don't really know it in our Tibetan culture. But he said, as I'm traveling more or going to the more westernized Asian countries like Taiwan or Singapore or Hong Kong, he said, I'm seeing that disease more now. The young people growing up, with that sense of not being okay that so many of us grew up with. And for me personally, I found this practice of metta to be enormously healing 
for working with that sense of just not being okay. And this is part of what I meant when I was saying that it's not selfish to do this practice just for oneself. It's actually a a huge balm for most of us, a a huge uh, sense of ease and, and, and healing that can come out of being able to truly wish ourselves well. And out of that, wishing others well and not moving in to that sense of separation. I really see metta as the practice of yes, of just saying yes to whatever is, to ourselves, to our bodies, to our hearts, to our minds, to our experience, to life. And we get to say it over and over again. And sometimes the teeth might be clenched a little, sometimes the yes is not you know, really wholehearted, but we just keep saying it over and over again. It's like this, may I love and accept myself just as I am. It's like this. James spoke last night about the benefits of metta, which are, are so beautiful to hear, you know, that your face will be serene and people will love you. Um, I'm glad that he emphasized that it really is what happens when metta is truly developed. We don't encourage anyone to go testing fire and poisons and weapons. That's the advanced metta practice. But the one that often catches people is, it has this beautiful line, may you sleep easily, wake easily, and have pleasant dreams. Well, you've only had one night here so far, but um, I know already some people have had difficulty sleeping. And people often find, especially on metta retreats, that dreams get really um, vivid and often really difficult that actually a lot of stuff percolates up from the subconscious. And people have come into interviews kind of, you know, almost abashed saying, I'm not really like that, but I murdered someone in my dream last night, or I had this really aggressive or fearful or violent kind of imagery. Again, to know that this is really normal. It's part of the purification. It's part of the letting go of all of this stuff that we carry within us. So not to judge what happens waking or asleep. This is part of the saying yes, that this is part of our psyche, part of our experience, and opening to this and and knowing that this is um, natural in the process. And, you know, if if this is happening to you, please to talk to a teacher. There are things we can say about how to work skillfully, but just to know that, that it's that it's definitely a normal part of the process to, to not sleep easily, to not wake easily, and to have unpleasant dreams. It's all part of the purification. And the other part of the uh, blessings of the benefits of metta are the connection with the devas. Whatever you think about that, whether you believe in them or not, there are devas here at Spirit Rock, but they're turkey devas, and deer devas, and lizard devas. I had to drive home this evening to, to, to take care of my cat, give her her evening meal, and uh, crossing the road, I live right here in Woodacre, was a whole family of turkeys. And there must have been another round of babies. There are tiny little babies crossing the road. This morning when I drove in, I saw a coyote down in the horse field. And then just as I turned the entrance, another little family of quail, and the tiny little quails going by. They're all our devas giving us the message of beauty and life and really reinforcing that teaching 
that all beings want to be happy to live and not to suffer. So whatever kind of devas you believe in, they're definitely here at Spirit Rock. And you can feel, you can feel the, the beauty that comes from them. Another of the challenges of this practice can be that it's an intentional practice. It's metta practice, so we should be feeling metta. Anytime we set up an intention or a goal, our A-type personality immediately arises to the challenge and said, well, let's get to it, you know, I should be feeling metta by now, or, you know, I, I should be further along, it, it should be happening, I should be feeling like this. And as I said earlier, it's one of the things I really learned a lot about is how to hold that sense of a possibility, of a potential, without getting tight around it, without making a big agenda and judging myself because I wasn't meeting that. It's a delicate dance that we all have to learn how to do, how to hold this possibility, to hold, really hold these wishes for ourselves and for others, for happiness, for joy, for kindness, for peace, for ease, and yet be okay with what is. Really trust that your struggle with this is going to be a huge gift, that you're actually going to learn a lot from that walk, walking that tightrope of holding this possibility, holding these intentions, really having a clear sense of may I be free of all of the struggle in my life. May my heart be open and full of kindness, and yet being okay that you're grumpy, or that your knee is aching, or that it's too hot. This, this balance, this dynamic will be with you for the whole retreat, and a huge place of learning. The other challenge that people often have, especially if you've done some vipassana practices, I've been given all these teachings about anatta, about selflessness, and here you are telling me to sit down and say, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be free, may I be safe. I thought there wasn't an I, and if there's no I, then who's feeling happy? Really important to recognize that metta works on a, a, a different level. The, the, the teachings of anatta and, and selflessness uh, uh, talking about an opening to a transcendent way of seeing, where there is this sense of just things arising, that this process is kind of impersonal. Metta works on the personal level and acknowledges that there is a sense of self, and this sense of self can be happy or sad, can feel wounded or elated, that it has, you know, I have my own history and memories and family and that tonight when I go to bed, I'll go to my bed and not your bed and I'll put on my clothes and not your clothes. We acknowledge that there is this very relative sense and, and way in which we are in the world that has a reality and it has a very impactful reality. And to, to actually work with that reality so that we soothe it a little and find some peace and ease within it actually then allows the mind and heart to open more to the deeper truths of impermanence, of suffering, of selflessness, 
but it, it actually creates this foundation for, for the wisdom to arise and, and be known. So don't try to figure out, you know, the, put, necessarily put the two teachings together. But as I said earlier, at some point they do come ultimately together, where there is no one sending metta. There is just metta radiating. Another area that people often want certainty about is, does this practice work? We get to the end of retreat and want to call up our friend and say, I was sending metta to you all week. Are you feeling better yet? Mm-hmm. And feel disappointed when they don't recognize all, that they've been the beneficiary of these weeks and hours of, of practice. We really have to recognize that it's not about that. It's not about fixing anyone or making anyone any different. What we're doing here is purifying our own hearts and minds. But the very act and fact of doing that does have an effect, of course, on other people. But it's not through reaching out and shaking them and saying, you know, wake up, I'm making you happy. It doesn't work like that. You know, there's some mysterious effect that that's possible that's happening, but we can't judge our practice on that or expect to to get some validation from outside. But I have seen, and we've all seen, that doing this practice changes us, and through that changes our experience of the world. I have no question of that. And so there is a ripple effect. We do change other people, but not through some overt reaching out and wanting them to be different, but just through being different ourselves. So to again and again see that the purpose is the purification of our own hearts and minds. And the rest, we just have to to leave to the mystery that happens out of that intention. So even though it is, there's a real uh, paradox that happens here because we have to do the practice wholeheartedly for the benefit of others, at the same time recognizing that the only place that the practice is really working is on ourselves, yet we're not doing it for ourselves. We're doing it for others. Does that make sense? So there's just this beautiful symbiosis that's happening here. We're doing the practice, we're working on our own hearts and minds, but it's not with a sense of selfishness. Even though we're the beneficiaries, as we purify our hearts and minds, it's a gift that we give the world. And so the cycle just continues through that. And it's a a beautiful feedback mechanism that happens. So we come to this practice with this sense of possibility that it is possible to know real peace and happiness. And that's not something that's extraordinary, that we don't deserve, that, that's at the end of some long journey, that's possible here and now in any moment that there's really a sense of acceptance, really a sense of kindness towards ourself, really a sense of just being okay with how things are. And we all know how transformative that is. You've all been around people who've been kind to you, and you know what a sense of 
safety and release, relief, letting go that comes when someone is genuinely interested in you, genuinely caring, to give that gift to ourselves and really recognize that we can give that gift to others. Something just begins to shift in our mind-body continuum when we start to open to that possibility. We see that we are really, as James was saying, reprogramming the patterns of the mind, the ones that tended to limitation, to judgment, to deficiency, and changing that to a sense of sufficiency, acceptance, and openness, possibility. It really is just a beautiful transformation, and it changes something on a very fundamental level. It's really quite amazing. Something will shift in you out of this week of practice. None of us can know what that's going to be, but I just know that it will on some powerful, fundamental way. You mightn't even know. You know, you get to the end of the retreat and go, I I don't feel that different. But it might be days or weeks afterwards that you start to really notice how things have shifted, how there's some different way of being with yourself and being in the world that's coming directly out of this sense of ease and kindness that you've cultivated in this practice. So I want to finish with a a short poem from Hafez, who's this amazing uh, Sufi poet. The book, uh, he's got, I think, a few books. This one is The Gift, translated by Daniel Ladinsky, who does, I know, very um, free-form translations. But each of these poems is just a, a, a song to the beloved. And whether you view the beloved as God or the divine or the divine in you, the, the, the beauty that's in you. You just have to open to any page, and it's just like ecstasy uh, on each page. But this one is called Today. I do not want to step so quickly over a beautiful line on God's palm as I move through the earth's marketplace today. I do not want to touch any object in this world without my eye verifying, testifying to the truth that everything is my beloved. Something has happened to my understanding of existence that now makes my heart always full of wonder and kindness. I do not want to step so quickly over the sacred place on God's body that is right beneath your own foot as I dance with precious life today. So at the end of our discourses, we like to just take a moment to let the words settle into silence. You don't need to shift your posture. It's just about sitting quietly and letting it sink in. So let's just take a moment in silence. Letting go of the words, feeling your body, feeling your heart, allowing everything to be as it is.
and maybe seeing, as Hafez says, something has happened to my understanding of existence that now makes my heart always full of wonder and kindness. and we'll come back at nine o'clock for a last sitting with chanting. We'll make the sitting a little shorter this evening because it's the end of our first day, so please, if you have some energy, it'll be shorter than specified on the, chant, on the sheet. And we'll do the chanting at the end so that those of you who have work meditation can still come and join in the chanting. So if you have a work meditation at this time, please feel free to join when you're ready. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.